know, we love to talk about the three billion plus dollars that have been um, funded uh, through the platform for all these creative projects. We love to talk about the number of backers and um, the million dollar campaigns that have been run. But um, in that flurry of excitement and hype around these big projects, which is great, like definitely, you know, more of those the better. But um, there is a massive community of much more, much smaller projects out there that are raising a couple hundred dollars, a couple thousand dollars, tens of thousands of dollars. And um, the reflection that I've had over the years um, that I think is a deeper reflection to culture and what I would say is the connective power of the internet is that that cash or capital that is getting transferred from you to me through that campaign is really an expression of my love for you, right? And so that might sound a little, um, you know, hippy dippy, but um, but I don't think it is, right? I think it's actually a really important thing that it allows us to to bring us closer together. Hello and welcome to the Community Podcast by CoMatter, a show that explores how people connect, share, and trade in today's hyperspeed world. My name is Severin Matusek. This is episode 11. And today's guest on the show is Charles Adler. Charles is a designer, entrepreneur, and technologist, most well known for being the co-founder and former head of design of Kickstarter, the crowdfunding platform that forever changed how creativity gets funded. Charles then founded Lost Arts, a 25,000 square feet workspace in Chicago, and travels the world to speak about social entrepreneurship, technology, and creativity. This podcast is the second conversation I had with Charles, and it builds on some of the discussions we had when we first met in Copenhagen last year. We talk about his experience in building Kickstarter, community design and lost arts, the difference in building a global online platform versus a physical workspace, corporate responsibility, and social change. I hope you enjoy it. Here's the community podcast with Charles Adler. Welcome, Charles. Thank you. It's great to have you again on a, on a conversation and on the show here. Um, how do you see both of these places that you found at Kickstarter and Center for Lost Arts? Where do you see the similarities between the two? That's a great question. So, you know, for one, I think my um, excitement around Kickstarter when I first met Perry, um, and our, I actually very much recall it on our fir very first phone call, um, I knew what he was after because I had been on the side of my day job as a designer, um, playing with, uh, my sort of skills as a designer and developer, um, and just curious person that was also, you know, member of, or part of this sort of broad community of creators, um, both digital, physical, whatever. Right. Um, so I've been tinkering, tinkering with these projects on the internet to kind of expose, um, creators to an audience that they didn't wouldn't have otherwise had or didn't have, and so Kickstarter was a sort of codification or a um, much stronger narrative for that, right? Uh, and ultimately, what I mean by that, and why I'm going back to this these other little side projects that I was working on, is these side projects were effectively like little products, if you will. There were uh, two versions of um, publishing. Uh, onto the internet, and um, and so what? What Kickstarter was, you know, ultimately was a or is clearly uh, a platform, right? It is a 
sandbox, a petri dish that allows uh, a number of people to bring their own imagination to the masses or to a small community of people to help get it off the ground. And so that was really compelling to me. That was a much better story than what I'd been working on prior, better version of it. And so, um, you know, the connection between Kickstarter being a platform to fund through community um, independent ideas from independent creators, you know, Lost Arts is kind of taking much more of a physical approach to it, sort of moving off of the internet, supposedly, um, but taking a very um, sort of software approach to how we've developed um, what we're building and um, and very much looking at it as a platform. And I, get, I think the best way that I can kind of describe that in, in sort of an equatable sense between Kickstarter and Lost Arts. Um, in the early days of Kickstarter, I remember the uh, the video game community. You know, Perry, Yancey, and I played video games. I can't say at least I can only speak for myself, but, um, you know, I wasn't uh, abreast of the industry, so to speak. Um, and um, early on, we saw some folks launch some comp campaigns around funding a game. And then there was some chatter around uh, the, that community about, um, this new thing called Kickstarter that enabled some of these projects to come out, come about. And that was not something that we had seeded. That was something that was like a hundred percent organic. And that, that is an example, one, one example of many. Um, and the same is true for Lost Arts, which is to say, you know, right now, um, we have, I'll call it two and a, two and a half, um, projects incubating out of the space, basically developing their kind of thesis or their product um, out of the space that are working in um, urban uh, ag connected agriculture. So IoT devices that help plants grow so that we can eat more health healthy foods. And um, that is not something that I had originally kind of conceived of happening in a space like Lost Arts at the onset. And so in thinking about it as a platform, it is a place for you to bring your creative imagination. Um, and so I'm fascinated by that. I'm quite frankly, the whole reason I, um, one, one of the things that I've found for myself is continuity between the two and just generally across all of my projects um, is just this fascination with the uh, creative process and fascination with seeing, observing, maybe playing a role in uh, the development of somebody's idea. I love seeing somebody do their best work, and that's fascinating to me. What I understand from your words is that a platform basically means you're creating the soil for yeah. many things to grow without necessarily having control over it or knowing what will come your way, right? 100%. So that both happened on Kickstarter with video game communities, other communities suddenly discovering the platform and putting on their projects and now happening to Center for Lost Arts. Um, so I, I have many questions around this because what I find interesting is, obviously, if we compare those two platforms and Center for Lost Arts being a physical platform, mm -hmm. being a physical space where people come in, so obviously the question of scaling is completely different to an online platform that can scale in, indefinitely basically. So how do you see that on from maybe from a community perspective of providing this framework and this soul but in a real space in an offline space 
is it is it more challenging? Is it more difficult? Is it harder to grow? Is it harder to reach more people because you're based in Chicago and it's your only location? Right. No, it's a fascinating question that I think about quite a bit. Um, and I think in there, um, there's an obvious limitation to physical space, right? There's only so many people you can cram into a room. Uh, and, um, and yet I am constantly interested in how do we um, enable more people? Right. And I, and I should say um, that, you know, I mentioned kind of taking a software development approach to Lost Arts. It's what I'm referencing is kind of a lean startup uh, methodology, if you will, which is simply to say you build, you know, uh, a proof of concept, sort of the, the, the rough and tumble idea and share it with some people. And then you scrap that and build a prototype. And then you probably build many prototypes. And we've gone through that process with physical space um, twice now. And it's in those um, hiatus seas, if that's a word, uh, the breaks between those iterations that I get pause and reflection, just kind of pull it back to that other moment. And and so we're in one of those moments right now. Um, you know, so with regard to in, in that moment, and even in the, in the moment as we're building the thing and actively running it, running the space, you know, there is always this question of like, hey, we're going to hit a wall. We don't even actually know what that wall is, because it's, it's not as though the, say, you know, thousand members uh, are actively in there all at one time. Right. So what is that activity? And, um, and then intensity at any one given time, you can think about this from a web, web analytics standpoint. But then there's another way to look at it, which is, um, you know, what do we stand for? What is the brand? And to what extent is that limited to physical space? Uh, what to what extent is that limited to the physical tools that we provide in the space? Um, and so um, I think there's actually a lot that we can play with that, that say allows us to um, do something effective in a, I don't know, 500 square foot space as much as we do now in a 25,000 square foot space. And then bring into that once we have a multitude of spaces, um, we're sort of very much in our infancy, but um, a boy can dream, uh, right? Uh, once we get into a network of spaces, um, what is the connective tissue between that network? And if you build connective tissue between that network, what's to say you couldn't reach beyond the physical locations? Yes. So you would, if you would grow Center for Lost Arts into multiple locations, that means you would also think about possibly attaching an online platform to it, so totally. all those people could connect. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And in our in our way that we've sort of modeled that um, over the last year, um, our hack, if you will, is a Slack account. Um, so we use Slack as a way for um, you know, the community of members to engage with one another, ask each other questions, give advice and so forth. And it's been um, really active. And even once we shut down, the community is still active, which is fascinating to me. Like they still want to stay in touch and still want to learn. Yeah, from so I, I mean, I would say that in this case, the success of this community is not Slack. It's not the, the online tool you're using. It's the spirit that people have and the commitment and the shared vision, right? Hundred percent. Yeah. How do you? Uh, speaking of that, how do you? How do you make sure that people who come to your space, you know, get into the right mindset? 
because I also think this mm -hmm. is very much different than having an online community where you know you can work with text, you can work with video, you can work with several design <laughs> and sign up forms to get people into the right mindset, right? And I think we previously talked a lot about design, you know, designing yeah. certain fields in a way that it's perfect for exactly the interaction you want to have. How does yeah, this exactly. work in a physical space? How do you translate yeah. that? I was, as you were asking that question or framing the question, I was thinking to myself, one of the beauties of the web is that I can uh, build software to read what you're writing as you're writing it. And so if you're using certain words, let's call it profanity that we don't like, I can remove it or ask you not to, to change the word, right? Um, you can't do that in a real setting. Someone's just going to say what they're going to say. Um, so, you know, I think going back to your question around cultivating community, I actually don't think it's too different. And I think what, what I would say outside of the, you know, what we just talked about from a technological standpoint, but, um, look, we're in a day an age where, um, I was just having this conversation earlier that the internet and the web have moved from sort of, you know, uh, cultish hippies, those of us working, uh, like nerds in the basement of the math building, uh, to part of everyday life, right? It is a mass consumption, uh, platform at this point, mean, meaning the internet and the web. And, and so that means it's starting to breed technology, that technology, this new kind of version of it, starting to, starting to, um, bleed into everyday life and starting to influence everyday life in different ways. And so I, I guess why I'm saying that is, look, we have a website and on that website, there was when we were, when we were running um, the experiment for the last year, a way to apply to become a member of Lost Arts. All right. And by doing that, I ask a few questions, um, uh, which give me a sense of who you are and what you want to do. And, and also by asking the questions, uh, we get to provide a little bit of a frame of expectation to the person applying by virtue of the questions that we ask, right? And so I think the conversation really starts there. And, I, and I'm saying this because, um, you know, in the early days with Kickstarter, you know, we knew um, we wanted to um, engage the community of creators that were running campaigns early um, because we knew the sense of the community that we were after early on. And so that leads to some form of curation, right? Selection of what should or should not go. Um, and we've kind of evolved beyond that for sure. And so I'm borrowing, borrowing a bit of that with regard to Lost Arts, which you, you used the word spirit earlier, which I thought was really appropriate. Um, and, um, you know, there is a spirit that I think we're, trying to exude and a community that relates to that spirit that doesn't quite have a place, a meeting place, right? Uh, and we want to provide that meeting place for that community that has that spirit, right? Uh, and, and so I think it's, I'm, I'm sort of trying to describe this um, hybridization, for lack of a better term, that, you know, we're using aspects of the internet, or we're influenced by aspects of the internet and parlaying that into, you know, uh, engaging a community in physical space. Like the selection process of, of you mm -hmm. know, both for Kickstarter and for and for Center for Lost Arts, 
in getting the right people, what you try to do, for example, with a sign-up form that you tested last year is like subconsciously put measures on your website, in your sign-up process, even, you know, probably as someone walks up the hallway to your space, that make sure only the right people come or a high percentage of the right people come who understand your mission, your values, and so on. Am I correct yeah. in that? Yeah, no, that's totally right. You know, it was, there was, I, I can recall one person that we turned away. And I think the fascinating thing is, I, as you ask that question, I think about that moment is, you know, there was very little, like, I didn't really have to not um, let this person in. They recognized on their own that maybe this isn't their spot. And what I mean by that is they were, um, they needed a tool in the space that we had, a laser cutter. Uh, and, um, and yet the project that they were working on, uh, quite frankly, I don't know if it was appropriate period, but, um, wasn't really akin to what we were trying to do. He was basically taking a, um, trademarked, uh, logo, uh, for a sports team and applying it to, um, different materials and selling it, which, when I say not appropriate, that's not really legal, but I'd actually say more more intellectually or ethically, it's not really, you're not really creating anything new per se. Um, and, and so it doesn't, it doesn't truly feel like a creative project. Um, and so, you know, he recognized that I definitely recognized that and I wasn't, you know, I didn't want that kind of work to be part of the community. It wasn't a judgment of the person, but maybe the How project. can one imagine your space? Because I've only seen a few pictures, but ah. is it like, do you have yeah. statements on the walls? Is everything like, is everything designed from A to Z? What are, what are, the, what are these measures <laughs> that where, where you would say, this is what sends a signal of what you're all about? Right. Yeah, no, totally. Um, you know, I, it's, um, that's, a, that's a great question because as a designer, you would imagine that I would design it from A to Z. Uh, but you know, I wanted, um, so it's, it's, it is a 25,000 square foot space in, a, in, uh, an industrial part of Chicago, uh, called Goose Island. Uh, and the building that we're in is a 300,000 square foot, um, uh, building concrete building, uh, brick and concrete that was previously a storage facility. Um, so it's a pretty amazing, looking building, uh, that is construction from another era. It's built very well, uh, concrete floors, uh, and, um, you know, in 10,000 square feet of the space is the sort of core workspace, um, completely open. And when I mean open, uh, there's a sort of an entry area, which we've prototyped as a, as a sort of a retail, um, space, uh, which, you know, effectively is a, uh, a display of objects uh, and such that are designed and made in the space by our community. It's effectively a showroom for them, but um, also, quite frankly, a showroom of what's possible, right? Um, and then you walk into the sort of co-working studio space, you know, nice desks, nice chairs, um, and then you move into a, a prototyping lab, which is a bit messier, um, perhaps, um, tables that you can solder on and burn if you need to, uh, which has happened. They're marked up. Uh, laser cutter, 3D printers, uh, vinyl cutter, um, sewing machines and soldering irons. 
and then you traverse into the back portion of the space, which is, um, you know, generally the more uh, intense sound and dust and danger zone, uh, which is the workshop. So table saw um, to drill press to CNC machine um, to more tables that you can construct on. And so, you know, I think that's the sort of facility, but I think the more important piece, quite frankly, kind of goes back to that retail portion, which is, uh, you know, the objects and the people that accompany the objects, right? The community of people. So it's, I, I described it in the way that it described it or tried to paint that picture and that it is a completely open and again, borrowing from the internet and the language and conversation around transparency. We're really trying to exude this kind of open, um, open community, right? Where, uh, the, and, and, you know, now I'm, I'm speaking about individual peoples, uh, where Pam, who's a painter and a sculptor is literally, um, working right next to, um, as she's painting, she's working right next to a team that's working on an urban IOT based agriculture project, right. Uh, who's then working next to a furniture designer, right. Who's then working next to somebody else who's also working on an urban ag project, focused on uh, mycelium or mushrooms. Um, and so it's this real crazy mix of people really pushing boundaries. And I think even in that, it's like, wow, crazy stuff is mm -hmm. happening in here. It Maybe my project isn't crazy. Your physical retail space, which is the first thing you see when you enter your location, could be compared to the website of an online community where you immediately see these are the members, this is what they do. And so subconsciously you understand Am I part of this? Could I be part of this? Or am I going yep. in a completely different direction totally. just by seeing what other people totally. do? It, it's yeah. our homepage, right? Like it's our physical homepage. And I, I, I like that. I, I, like, I have not thought about it in that way, but I definitely see um, much of, you know, what I've effectively taught myself and learned over the years with regard to user experience design and interaction design and just graphic design and all the designs. Um, has uh, entirely translatable to the physical world. And I, and I want to posit this one comment, which is you know, much of the inspiration that I've gotten back in you know the early and mid 90s when, when I had started out in my quote unquote career, um, as a designer, they were all architects. Mies van der Rohe, I mean, some designers like Charles and Ray Eames, Aero Saarinen, like that was wh where most of my um, design uh, ideas had sort of come from. Um, and so it's sort of funny that I'm going full yeah. circle. The other thing I wanted to talk to you but... about is um, the technology part and the, the part of, you know, social values intersecting with technology and business, because this is kind of like where we met first time mm -hmm. at Tech Festival in 2017 in Copenhagen, which was very much about these topics. Um, so first question actually is, you, you travel a lot. That's what I see on your Instagram and on your Twitter. And, and, you, and you give a lot of talks, I think, yeah. in, in places all around the world. What are these talks about? Yeah. And who do you talk to? Right. Yeah. It, and it's, it's, a, it's a rotating audience. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of um, you know, designers and entrepreneurs and technologists that um, I ended up, end up speaking to um, university uh, students uh, is one other contingent and then, you know, I think it's also the easy one is also just a lot of large companies that are trying to figure out, um, figure the, the world out that is um, slipping beneath their feet, uh, right? And I guess, you know, on, on the topic level, 
you know, much of it is around um, design and technology and entrepreneurship. But what I would say is more important that I always, you know, really for me, the important part, if if those topics are conduit for something else, the something else is about um, being an ambassador for change, but also social change and, sh and knowing that the things that we make have some sort of impact mm -hmm. in the world. So tell me more, um, tell me more right? about this social change. What What is your vision that mm. you try to promote to those people, universities, companies around the world? Yeah, you know, I, I think, um, and we see this a lot with Kickstarter. Maybe I can kind of describe it in the sense of a project, right? Um, which is to say that the world becomes a much more conversational and open place. Now we see a lot of that on Twitter, right? Um, but if I can bring it to more of a intimate community standpoint, um, I think we see this with Etsy and we certainly see this on Kickstarter. I think we occasionally see this on, on Twitter, but, you know, in the context of, of Kickstarter, it's, um, you know, we build this platform, you can call it a community of creators globally. But the thing that I find more fascinating is each project in and of itself is a community. It's an individual kind of being the Pied Piper, if you will, around their project and, and pulling a really intimate community together of fans, supporters, people who just love ideas or love the object or love the spirit of, of that brave person's act of putting themselves out there, right? Um, there's this honesty in that moment. Um, there's this scary thing in that moment. And, um, and so I think um, it's... It is in that story um, that I commonly use this one, uh, this one particular project uh, from Kickstarter, um, and the um, story that I end with, or the the sort of reflection of my own that I end with, is the fact that you know we love to talk about the three billion plus dollars that have been um, funded. Uh, through the platform for all these creative projects. We love to talk about the number of backers and um, the million dollar campaigns that have been run. But um, in that flurry of excitement and hype around these big projects, which is great, like definitely, you know, more of those, the better. But um, there is a massive community of much more, much smaller projects out there that are raising a couple hundred dollars, a couple thousand dollars, tens of thousands of dollars. And um, the reflection that I've had over the years um, that I think is a deeper reflection to culture and what I would say is a connective power of the internet is that that cash or capital that is getting transferred from you to me through that campaign is really an expression of my love for you, right? And so that might sound a little, um, you know, hippy dippy, but, um, but I don't think it is right. I think it's actually a really important thing that it allows us to, to bring us closer together. Right. And I'll, and maybe I can reflect on, on this other moment, um, which is less about the talk, but maybe an example of what we're doing right now. Right. Like we met in Copenhagen before I went on stage to give this talk and then you followed up. And here we are on Skype, talking over the internet, over an ocean, right? Uh, and sure, we've been doing that with phones forever, or for some part of, part of ever. Um, but 
um, all I mean to say is that, you know, we get hyped up about this technology, but the reality is like it, in some cases it actually does very uniquely and personally connect us to be able to have a conversation. And I think that's I would incredibly be curious, important. What do those, your audiences, especially let's say large corporations mm. that listen to your talk, what's their feedback? Is this complete news to them that this is about people? This is about connection. This is about, you know, the human values in between. How do they react and do they apply some of these learnings from you then into their day-to-day -day practice? Right. Okay. So, I, you know, I think it resonates quite well. I mean, usually the conversations are pretty fascinating after the talk. I'm actually generally most interested in that moment. Um, but, you know, I think... Um, daily behavior ends up taking over. And so I guess what I mean by that is, um, and I've, and I've seen this kind of firsthand over the past couple of years in, you know, different engagements that I've had with some of these larger companies. And, um, ultimately the, the difficulty is, um, you know, you might be able to think a different way for a moment, but, but sometimes the, uh, the power of the, let's call it the machine, but everyday routine and the sort of consensus around you ends up pulling you back into uh, the same behavior, um, right? And, you know, if I can, if I can play on that little topic for a bit, it's, it's, that is where the entrepreneur wins, because they don't have, they're still trying to figure out behavior, right? There's a word nimble that we like to use, right? And, and so they still have that. They're still very nimble mentally and intellectually. They're not grounded by anything because they're curious and scared uh, and, um, and excited all at the same time about this opportunity. Um, but they're in many cases just trying to keep the thing afloat, right? Um, and so I think, I think in that is there's just a, it's a context problem. Uh, and I think, you know, some companies are starting to get it. Uh, and it's interesting to watch, um, a number of these companies form venture groups and what is the definition of a venture group for a corporate entity or, um, create innovation teams and what does that really mean? Um, and how do they actually operate? And, you know, it's probably going to be different than a, um, early stage startup that doesn't have does this corporate also mean backing. the understanding of a company, be it large or small that they are part mm -hmm. of a community, a society, a culture, and they have a certain responsibility to give back to that and to connect with that. Yeah, I, you know, I think um, I think we like to build up, or sorry, beat up the status quo a lot. So the incumbents, right? These big companies that, um, you know, are sort of seem to be just for the profits. But I think reality, when you start talking to the people inside and learn about some of the activities that they do inside or within their communities around where they work, like there's actually a lot of good that happens. It may just be that the transaction um, doesn't, feels awkward. Like it doesn't resonate with me, right? The fact that there's a division of a company called corporate social responsibility and their job is to find all the good that we can do in the world. Well, why isn't the good just inherent in what we do, right? Um, so it's, it feels like a Band-Aid to the, to the, to the wound. Um, and I think, you know, what we see a lot of now, I would say Kickstarter is very much part of this narrative, Tom's Shoes perhaps. We see this with Patagonia, meaning, meaning an older company uh, that has been 
kind of carrying that torch for a long time in different ways and kind of finding themselves again over, over, over time, um, is, you know, integrating and finding a balance of, um, doing, doing well economically, financially, but also doing some good in the world. Right. Um, and I think it's that we're in this moment where there's a lot of things intersecting right now. And I think the world is getting very gray. And I don't mean grim, but I mean gray in terms of the gray space in between, um, you know, divisions, departments, disciplines, what have you. Um, we're really starting to meld together. I'm a generalist, right? Uh, I'm a designer and a, a sort of a hacky developer. Um, I suppose technologist, probably a better word. Um, and I guess now entrepreneur. Uh, and, you know, I can't say that I'm great at any of them because I can't focus on any one at any one given time, but um, I'm probably pretty Maybe good can, at all. You can talk a little bit about, uh, you mentioned Kickstarter, you know, being part of that, leading the way. And I guess you, may, you what you mean by it is Kickstarter being a public benefit corporation, right? Right, right, right. Maybe you can quickly explain what it actually means and, and what led you to make Kickstarter a public benefit corporation. Sure. Um, you know, so I should say that transaction, that act of, of um, shifting to a PBC, Public Benefit Corporation, um, happened just after I'd, I'd left. It's something that we had been talking about for a long time um, and um, actually uh, you know, sort of transacted that. I can't remember the year, actually. Let's call it two or three years ago. Um, but, you know, I, I think uh, there was a moment. Yancey, I think, had summed this up quite well, um, uh, which was... Uh, that, you know, if this opportunity or if we had known that we had this option, uh, this option as a, as a corporate structure, as a, as a, as a legal structure, uh, if we had known this when we had started the company, we would, we would have done it off the bat, right? It just was something that resonated with our ideals as individuals. And I think from an, even from an optic standpoint, um, externally, it, is it makes a statement. Yeah, and but right? it, it, what it's, it is what is it exactly? It means you give certain amounts of your profit back to the society. So it, it's yeah. There's a there's a number of things, and, and I would say it's 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 you have the opportunity to write in uh, the benefits that the corporation provides to the to the general public uh, when you when you create uh, this company structure. Right. So there's benefits that you write that. Um, need to be upheld by, say, the board. Um, and so, you know, one thing that I would say is, you know, the, the um, in and of itself, Kickstarter has a public benefit, right? It provides um, latent capital to creators uh, that otherwise wouldn't have been funded, right? Um, and so intrinsically in Kickstarter, it, there is a public benefit. Um, and so, you know, one of our, what I would say, one of our, um, aspects, I suppose, of um, control is that, uh, and one of the attractive aspects of a public benefit corporation is there are these public benefits, and then there's the um, in your responsibility to uphold those those benefits, but also the you know quite frankly economic um, benefit that the company uh, has to also uphold. We need to um, ha be profitable, right? Think basic things like that. Um, but what in say the public markets, um, particular, particularly, and we have a lot of conversation around that publicly, but, um, you know, it is solely about 
growth of capital, right? And so in the construct of a public benefit corporation, uh, it allows a greater balance between um, economic growth and community focus. And so we have that right to, um, you know, push off some economic growth for the sake of benefiting the community, whether that means tools on Kickstarter to enable people to, um, uh, say, fulfill their projects or whatever the case may be, uh, run a better campaign, engage with their audience a bit better. Um, these are all things that benefit uh, the, the community of creators. And then there's other things that we've written in, which is, you know, we give some percentage of our, our um, profit each year to a nonprofit of our choice in either um, the arts or um, How hard or was it quality. to make this decision? Because it sounds great, but it also sounds like Kickstarter being the company mm -hmm. that it is today, you could technically become yeah. a billionaire once you sell it or once it goes public, right? Which probably... <laughs> You won't now because it's a public benefit corporation. Is was it hard to make the decision? I, you know, I would say that one does not limit the other, um, but it wasn't hard to make that decision only because you know our, our our interests were always in that balancing act anyway, right? Like we weren't money hungry to have some billion dollar exit uh, or whatever the the number would be, right? Uh, and so, you know, we knew that we had built something special. We had a very close relationship to, uh, a, a, a large number of the people that were running campaigns. Like we, these are our friends, right? Um, and the number of friends that I have made by virtue of that, that time building Kickstarter is pretty incredible. And I continue to meet new people. Right. Uh, and so like there, we recognized that there was value in that and why contort it for our own personal gain. Right. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if there's any other real way to explain it other than that. We're just maybe different people. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. I mean, the way I understand it is also it could also be a measure to ensure in some way that Kickstarter hmm. becomes a long lasting thing. Right. Because if you, you know, with other structures, you could probably maybe there comes this very tempting offer that you can't refuse. You sell it and the company that bought Kickstarter is going to shut it down. Which means well, right. know, all of so, these things you build up are going to vanish. So was this part of the process? Right. So this, that was definitely part of the, the thought process, which is which has more to do with, um, and, and I like you, 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 the fact that you use the, the term longevity. Like we were thinking about the fact that like, hey, at some point we are going to die um, or maybe at one point all three of us leave the company, right? Uh, and who is going to carry that torch, Right. And we can we can interview them and know them so well, but over over years and decades, you know, who knows? Maybe it gets contorted in some way. And so we wanted to be able to at least preserve the essence of why we started it, right? Um, and and I would say that that was a that was a big motivating factor behind that that act as yeah, well. I see. Uh, the reason why I'm asking is hmm. because obviously, you know, I think. A lot of the things that we've seen in the last year, talking about 2017 again and the new year, is more and more criticism coming upon tech companies in Silicon Valley, right? Mm -hmm. Companies mm -hmm. that are acting unethical, companies that are merely there for making the next billion dollar exit, that accumulate tons of data to, to send you advertising that you don't want to see and so on. So there's <laughs> very little examples like Kickstarter and your mindset that guide founders or guide the general public 
in this direction. So yeah. I wanted to know, you know, why did you choose that? And what takeaways can we take from your decisions and your mindset so that maybe more people take that path? Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And we, we, you know, I think that was when I, when I used the term optics earlier, I think that was one of the, um, uh, make us and making a statement. It was, you know, that was in mind. Like we wanted to project out how we think and how we operate. I mean, even to the extent that we've made the, um, benefits of the corporation public, right? Our charter is public. You can go to the website and, and read it. Uh, and we talk about it. It's in our footer that we were PBC. We're very proud of it. And, and we, you know, I think we knew that it was going to make a statement because it felt very different than, you know, the story you might normally hear about our quote unquote industry. But I think it's also, you know, I think it's also really important to note, I mean, I, I mentioned Patagonia earlier, right? Like, this is a company that's effectively been acting in this way for a long time, right? And so, as have many of these other, m many of their peers generationally as companies have been acting uh, in in a very similar way to some of the other companies that we're criticizing now, right? And so, um, I think we need to look at the past as well as look at the present to then um, influence the future. And so I, I do hope, um, I think we all hope that there's going to be more examples of, um, you know, of this, of what we've done with, with Kickstarter. And I, and I see the same sort of path for, um, for Lost Arts as well, right? I mean, we're providing a, a public benefit, which is um, minimizing uh, the, um, Uh, or diminishing the the strain of access to uh, equipment and space and community around creative projects, right? And so the uh, more fluid that we can enable, and this I think this statement probably uh, uh, applies both to Lost Arts and Kickstarter, but um, the the lower the bar to entry to creative work, I think the better world that we will eventually have, greater freedoms that we have as creators. Who are your role models in in this thought process, in being an entrepreneur, being someone who builds communities, who gives back to community? Hmm. Who do you look up? Who do you look up to? Well, you know, I think um, if I ever get to meet uh, Yvonne Chouinard, he would be one of them. Uh, so, founder of Patagonia, I find him to be fascinating. Um, you know, there there's a number of unsung heroes that I would um, maybe do a shout out to mm -hmm. if I can yeah, do of course, that, which is, do. you know, all of the angel investors that are, that you end up meeting. I, I find, you know, it, uh, unlike the common narrative with um, entrepreneurs and startups and fundraising, it's usually seen as a really backbreaking, horrible distraction from building the project. And I would generally kind of agree with that, except in that process, you really meet some fascinating people that are supporting your idea. And none of us would be anywhere without those who came before us. And I think there's this um, sort of unwritten, actually at some level untalked about, unspoken uh, behavior that happens in the world of entrepreneurship, which is if you've made it, you pay it forward, right? Which is if you've made it, you're then going to go and invest in everyone else's uh, efforts because you know how difficult it was, right? You want to be that Sherpa, that guide and so forth. And so, you know, I was just meeting with um, a guy Uh, Mike Gamson, who um, recently met here in Chicago, who 
is uh, a prolific supporter of entrepreneurs in Chicago. Um, and this city, much like any city, um, needs more Mike Gampsons, right? Um, and so when I say un unsung heroes, it's not the idols that we typically hear about um, that, that are necessary. And I think it goes maybe back to just the simple little fact that it, it takes a village, right, to raise a kid, but also to grow a company. What would you suggest to a young founder who, who wants to build something, who wants to start a community, who wants to start a, a company? What one thing or two things or three things would you tell them? Talk to people. I think one of the things that um, cripples people at times is the fear of sharing their idea, right? Um, and it kind of goes back to that last statement, which is, you know, that it takes a village to raise a kid, right, or a, or a company. And, um, you know, you're going to find a lot of detractors, take heart in those moments and learn something from it, but then very quickly move on. Um, but I think, you know, you need to get out and talk to people and there is a, you know, you got to kind of trudge through the detractors before you can find the proponents. Uh, and, um, it's when you find those proponents, you suddenly end up in your tribe of supporters. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Severin. <laughs> thank you, it was <laughs> great. Right. Thank you for listening. And thank you, Charles, for being a guest on the show. If you like this episode of the Community Podcast, please share it, tell your friends about it, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a review. My name is Severin, and you can find me at comata.com, a platform that explores what makes communities thrive.